And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, Force Five. What's up, listeners? This is the Force Five Podcast, now sporting a new logo, and I'm your host, ex-video store clerk Jason Kleberg. Today's guest is Luke Cheney, the host of Movie Time Capsule, a show that I've been on, and the topic he chose is one of the most fun I've done, and that's top five diegetic songs. If you're currently pulling your phone out of your pocket to Google that term, don't worry about it, we'll explain when we get there. Last week's topic was underrated non-horror sequels, and we got a pretty good response across social media. Here's just a couple up. Pumuckle, Pumuckle for Life, says, I don't know if it's underrated, but I preferred Austin Powers 2 over the first one, and I think that definitely counts. Logical Photograph 1 says Jurassic Park 3, one of the most hated films in the series, but I rewatched it recently, and it's actually really good. Movie Under the Surface, Die Hard 3 was decent, nowhere near the first, but light years ahead of the second. Come on, Die Hard 2, I guess uh, this falls into my argument for Die Hard 2 being underrated. John Latour says, if you like action movies, Universal Soldier, The Return, and Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning. I have not seen either one of those, so I will search those out. Beta Alex 81 says, Naked Gun 2.5 and, and Naked Gun 33 and a third. And finally, Cinema City says, Adam's Family Values was far more entertaining than the first one. And although I recognize I'm in the minority on this, Bogus Journey was better than Excellent Adventure when it comes to Bill and Ted. Definitely different style films. Thank you for all those comments across social media. Again, if you want to get involved, I do post on Reddit. I post the question on Twitter at Force5Pod and on Instagram at Force5Podcast. And if you give me some input, your comment just might make the show. I saw a couple things this week that I want to talk about. The first is from 1975. It's a film called Macintosh and TJ. Anybody around here doing any hiring that you know of? Nope. What you get in life depends on a couple of breaks and how hard you're willing to work for it. Suits me if it suits you. I can take care of myself. You're just bound to get caught taking something ain't yours, aren't you? We can look for work along the way and take our time getting there. He stole my money. Wait just a minute. Let the boy explain. All right. Macintosh is a wandering ranch hand, one who looks for work in whatever town is up next on the road. TJ is a kid who's run away from home, wondering how he fits into the world. The two meet and end up going on the road together, where they learn that life might be more interesting to have no personal attachments, but that doesn't make it better. In general, Western films are one of my large genre blind spots. I've seen many of the more modern big hitters, films like The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Unforgiven, Tombstone, The Wild Bunch, but my knowledge of old Westerns is basically nothing. I don't think I've ever seen a John Wayne film, a Red Rider film, and until now, I hadn't seen a Roy Rogers film either. This is Roy Rogers' final silver screen appearance, although he'd guest on a few TV shows after this. He plays Macintosh, a kind man who will get tough when he needs to, but generally looks out for people and happens to be a very skilled ranch hand. Again, I don't know much about Roy Rogers' film career, but I know that he was generally looked up to by young and old alike, and this feels like a role selected by an old man who wanted to be remembered as a role model. This is also Clay O'Brien's last big screen role, although he would continue to act on TV for another year or so as a part of the cast of A Magical World of Disney. 
He's fine as the 14-year-old TJ, a rapscallion, who looks like he'd fit right in with the Bad News Bears, yellow cap and all. Now, this is not your typical revolver-slash-cowboy flick. It's a modern late-70s film trading the stagecoaches for pickup trucks as the pair venture from job to job floating on a bouncy western soundtrack performed by Waylon Jennings. The best parts of this film are those with Macintosh and TJ as the elder looks out for the kid and teaches him things like the cowboy way and how to treat women right. It's a slow-moving film, which is deliberate, but it's not without its fireworks. During a barroom brawl, Macintosh blasts somebody in the face with a glass ketchup bottle, He's also framed for murder, and there's a subplot with a jealous, abusive husband. There are some guns that make their way into the climax of the film, but the violence is more innocent than most westerns, and there's no blood to be seen here. It's just not that kind of film. Macintosh and TJ is a well-made film that's never flashy with some solid performances. The yarn it spins was a bit too melodramatic for me, and I wouldn't I probably wouldn't revisit it for a while, but it's a decent film if you're looking for a slice of the mid-70s, dusty, traveling work life. If you're a fan of Roy Rogers, I'm sure you've probably already seen this, but he plays an admirable role in his last big screen appearance. Vertigo Entertainment is releasing this on Blu-ray in a two-pack with Rogers' first breakout film, Under Western Stars, from 1938. I've not watched that one yet, but I can say that the restoration they've done on Macintosh and TJ was fantastic. Cut from a new 4K scan I watched on my OLED and the colors really popped and everything looked crisp and clear. Surprisingly, there's an audio commentary on here from Clay O'Brien and Andrew Robinson, who plays a creepy peeping Tom in the film, as well as an interview with Billy Green Bush, who played Luke, and a little reunion piece with those who are still alive. I haven't yet dug into the commentary, but it's commendable that it's on here and I will definitely listen to it later. I also watched 1987's Stripped to Kill. A maniac is killing strippers. Great, a stripper. How are they gonna keep this quiet? Detective Sheehan has the only weapon that can stop him. Her body. more than just going out there and turning them on. It's like something's cutting loose. Yes, I will burn you down. You are a cop. Stripped to kill. One woman's fantasy becomes every woman's nightmare. The Rock Bottom is a seedy LA strip club filled with women who have karate bodies and kung fu faces. When a stripper ends up tossed off a walkway and burned alive, Detective Cody Sheenan goes undercover and bears it all to catch the killer. Based on the cover art, I went into this movie thinking that it would be a slasher-style horror film, but it turns out it's more of a police procedural-slash-erotic thriller. Detectives Sheenan and Heinemann are the ones undercover trying to bring down a killer, which is already a really thin premise for a movie because when they decide to take the job, only one person had died, albeit in pretty grim fashion. I find it hard to believe that Sheenan's superiors would allow her to go undercover as a stripper. She could have gone in as a cocktail waitress or even as a patron, but instead she goes up on stage and does the equivalent of an Elaine Bennis dance where she reveals she's shy about taking her top off, but somehow gets a recurring position at the rock bottom anyway. The rest of the film sees only one more stripper killed while Cody and her partner Detective Heinemann, who's doing his best Terminator Kyle Reese cosplay, turn over rocks to see if they can find the killer. There are plenty of suspects. The kid who's mad at his sister, who's leaving to be with her lesbian lover. A scuzzy hood-wearing simpleton who is at the club every night listening to his own music on a Walkman. To be fair, the music in this film does suck. 
and a cigar-chopping old man who you know isn't killing people unless the movie decided to go full Scooby-Doo on us. Unfortunately, the cops are pretty bad at their jobs, and eventually the killer just finds them. There's some very forced sexual tension between the two cops, which felt more like brother and sister to me than romantic material. Ugh. The interesting theme of jealousy and subsequent female empowerment as Cody begins to like stripping is quickly tossed into the trash can in favor of an off-screen fuck scene. The strippers were actually played by strippers, so the dance scenes looked authentic, although I find it hard to believe that a low-rent location like the Rock Bottom would hold such elaborate dance numbers. Some include props like snakes, motorcycles, and a whole damn office setup. I like the backstage back and forth the women had, it definitely felt realistic. The profession was respected by the filmmakers and never looked down on them, which I did appreciate. This was directed by a female named Kat Shea, who's no stranger to exploitative erotic thrillers, directing Poison Ivy, Streets, and a sequel to this film two years later, conveniently titled Strip to Kill 2, that has nothing to do with this one. Kat got pretty good performances out of her dancers, but everybody else on screen sucks and the dialogue is atrocious. It actually felt like there was a lot of ADR work too, and it's very obvious. The ending has a twist you probably won't see coming, but it's kind of dumb. The nudity is never gratuitous, and the gore factor is pretty tame, although the few people we see die on screen do so in brutal ways. The kills are edited to hell, and you can barely tell what the fuck's going on. The first kill is so hacked up that I honestly didn't know what had happened until our two bungling cops talked it out for me. The editing in this film is atrocious, and I read that Roger Corman cut 30 minutes of runtime out of the final product, and I'm guessing that was mostly plot, which is already extra slim. If you cut out the strip club dance scenes, you might have a 45 minute movie here. In summary, Strip to Kill is a sleazy slice of 80s strip club life with a few kills peppered in wrapped in a cozy whodunit. The ending feels rushed and the love story doesn't work, but it's an interesting neon-soaked Los Angeles time capsule. The strip scenes are admirable, but if you want to see a better film that deals with a similar subject, check out Fear City by Abel Ferrara. Finally, last thing I want to talk about this week is 2021's new Hong Kong action film Raging Fire. Chung Sung Bong is a very respected officer of the regional crime unit. He's an honest family man who gets the job done. When a pack of ex-officers turned violent criminals ambushes a group of police and kills his boss, Chung makes it his mission to bring them down. This was Benny Chan's final film before he tragically died from cancer, and he went out with a bang. From the opening scene, you know you're watching an epic inspired by Michael Mann's Heat. Donnie Yen, who's one of my favorite Hong Kong actors, plays Chiung, and he's good as the stoic, determined police officer looking to avenge his mentor's death. But the real star of this film is Nicholas C, who plays Nyo, the leader of his band of cops turned criminals. He's so charismatic in the role that I found myself kind of rooting for him. Certain scenes even felt inspired by Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight, specifically one set inside of a police interrogation room. He's just so damn cool. He's like a mixture of Chow Yun-Fat's tequila and Luke from Bullet in the Head. Benny Chan was an extremely competent filmmaker, so everything looks great. The action is shot very well, aided by the killer talents of the actors in said fights, and the camera movements are kinetic and draw you into each situation. There's a little too much noticeable CGI here for my taste, specifically CGI blood and explosions, but the only piece that was so bad that it was actually distracting was one scene of a motorcycle jumping a guardrail. Overall, it looks and sounds great. The story doesn't provide anything new. You've probably seen this kind of thing a million times. There are gray areas in life. Police work isn't black and white, blah, blah, blah. And it feels a little long in the tooth at points, but luckily those lulls are broken up by some action scenes and God damn, they deliver. 
One particular fight scene involves Chung battling his way out of a slum neighborhood after he confronts a local drug dealer who's not ready to go quietly. Chung takes off his bulletproof vest, wraps it around one arm as sort of a shield slash guard, and then heads into battle with a ton of goons armed with machetes. The fight heads from the favelas to the sewer and even into the city streets, and you feel every hit as these guys beat the shit out of each other. Another involves the first fight I can recall on film where one character is in the driver's seat of a car and the other is driving a motorcycle next to him. It was thrilling and inventive. Finally, there's a big action set piece at the end of the film that is most definitely inspired by heat as cops pin the criminals in the middle of traffic and the bullets start flying. As the credits roll, we're treated to a tribute of set photos featuring the late Benny Chan working amongst his crew. It was a rewarding cap on a solid film, paying homage to the master who had helmed his final project. Raging Fire might be a familiar tale of cops versus robbers, but it's engaging and the performances are great, specifically that of Nicholas C. Add in the amazing action scenes and this one becomes an easy film to recommend if you like action movies. Now, we all watch a ton of movies, obviously, but have you ever thought about being in one? I mean, if that Beethoven dog can be a movie star, anyone can do it, right? If you think you've got what it takes, it's time to call today's sponsor, the Carla Fern Agency. Do you have a mean British accent? Do you play the banjo? A life-changing role could be right under your nose. If you can drive and juggle and crap, you could be the right fit and might just be auditioning tomorrow for whatever roles they're sending Gyllenhaal out on. With most talent agents, they take 10% of whatever job you take, but with Carla, she takes a flat 5,000 up front, which sounds like a great bargain, and that only gets better when you tell her that the Force 5 podcast sent you. You'll save 35 bucks when you sign your contract. That's right, $35, and that includes headshots. It, do it, it doesn't include headshots? It does not include headshots, of course. That would be insane if it did. The Carla Fern Agency. Call now. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Luke Cheney, host of a podcast I was recently a guest on called Movie Time Capsule. Luke, how are you tonight? I am doing fantastic. It's it's good to be back here on the flip side, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Movie Time Capsule is a really great idea, and I had an awesome time while I was on. For those listeners who might not have heard my appearance on your show, why don't you tell us what Movie Time Capsule is all about? Movie Time Capsule is a one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation with either a filmmaker or a film lover, and I ask them questions to pretty much force them to fill up a time capsule full of the movies that have shaped their life, whether it be the movie that makes them cry the most or the movie that they're excited to watch with their future child. Um, and it's just a really great way to figure out and learn about people through their movie choices. Yeah, I had a great time on the show and talked about both of those. I talked about a film that I can't wait to watch with my son and one that makes me cry like a little baby. So uh, go over <laughs> to Movie Time Capsule after you listen to this and go check out my episode and then all the other episodes, which either feature just somebody or sometimes you go through entire directors kind of like filmographies, right? Yeah, we've done uh, we've done Tom Hanks and we recently did Robert Zemeckis and we've it's the same kind of questions, but they're all just filtered through one person's body of work. And it's a it's a great little challenge to come up with single answers and not re repeat any movies with with these choices. It's a lot of fun. Well, tonight's topic is top five diegetic songs. And I guess we should kind of define that first for our listeners. When you think diegetic songs, what's your definition? Well, 
I always, I don't know why I go back to this, but this is a, a TV reference is when, when Fonzie hits the jukebox and the song comes on in the, um, in the uh, Owl's Diner or whatever that is, that's diegetic. Everyone in the diner can hear it. We can hear it as well as the audience. Um, and I know you have a, another example as well. A classic film example would be John Cusack holding the stereo over his head in Say Anything, blasting In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Because again, the characters in the scene can hear the song and then we can hear the song. So diegetic songs are, are things that happen within the confines of the narrative in the movie it would not be like kenny Loggins' danger zone in top gun that's not a diegetic song tom cruise can't hear that song and most scores also would not fit into this so it's songs that the characters in the scenes can hear i gotta tell you my friend this like i say this sometimes i say this when people have a really great topic and it's like wow i had to really try to i had a difficult time just paring down my list but with this one I literally, my wife and I were in bed the other night. We looked through YouTube for like an hour and a half, just coming up with things on our head like, oh, oh, I remember one. Let's let's watch that clip. <laughs> and there wow. are just so many good ones. It was such a good night just listening to music in the context of movies. Uh, so I really appreciate this topic. Did you have a tough time narrowing your list down? Yeah, I also had a tough time. It's because first you got to think about it like, wait a minute. Is this diegetic or non-diegetic? Like that, like that's that's the first problem you got to come across when looking for music. And then it's just like, do I like this song because I like it, or does it work well in the movie because of what the director is trying to say with the music? So like, there's my heart was kind of torn across the page here as far as why am I choosing these things and where do they rank on the list? And um, yeah, up until like an hour ago, I was still struggling with my answers. I'm still honestly struggling with my answers. And at this point, I think I'm just going to have to throw in the towel and let the internet crucify me for just leaving certain ones off because uh, some of them are just not going to be able to make this list. Let's let it fly. Yeah, we're we're just going to go. And for my list, the way that I narrowed things down, I disqualified musicals. And I don't know if you did the same. I also did the same. Yeah, musicals are off the table for sure. Luke, are you ready to get into this list? Let's go. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five. The top five. Top five diegetic songs. What's number five on your list, Luke Cheney? Number five for me, I want to start this list off with the song that is used as a tool in the movie, by the by the main character it's kind of an oddball pick because it's more of a guitar riff but it, it's technically a song uh, it's called out of the window and it appears in a small film called back to the future It's great at bringing 80s pop culture into the plot to either hinder or help Marty, 
when he's stuck in the fifties and uh, like he has to change his name because Calvin Klein is, you know, written on his underwear. Um, when he <laughs> names Ronald Reagan as the president, it crushes his, you know, believability with Doc Brown. But there are three things that physically help Marty in the movie that he brought with him in the DeLorean. And uh, it's the yellow hazmat suit, his, his Walkman. And it's a tape of Eddie Van Halen playing guitar. And that is my number five song. And he uses the tape, as you know, uh, to it's like a uh, it's like a mind altering device to get his father to um, go ask his mother out on the dance. And I just think it's it was such an awesome moment because, um, um, you know, Marty, he is a guitarist himself. And it makes sense that he would have that in his world with him on his person like he. He wants to be a better guitarist, so it makes sense that he would be listening to one of the greatest guitarists of all time and have that tape with him. And it's just a really cool moment of of 80s, you know, a great 80s guitarist and Darth Vader's getting name dropped in there and and Star Trek at the same time. It's just an amazing like one minute scene of just so many great things happening with music. I'm so glad that you brought up Back to the Future because I actually have Back to the Future on my honorable mention list. And it's actually for a different part of Back to the Future where he plays Earth Angel and then transitions into Johnny B. Good during the prom. Yes. Which is just another great one. Uh, so Back to the Future, really, really strong pick to start us off. Yeah, I had, I had to get Back to the Future in there somehow. And I, I loved how it just kind of it popped into my brain. Today. I was like, oh, the tape that he had on the Walkman. Yes, and that one's good too because it, like you said, it, it has to do with the plot. Uh, my number five pick here is also from the 80s. This one doesn't have as much to do with the plot, but I had to include it because of how damn iconic it is. This is Tom Cruise's underwear dance from Risky Business. Yes! <laughs> Risky Business, a classic American sex comedy in which, much like the plot of many teen comedies, the protagonist has this party when his uh, or their parents go away on a trip, and invariably things get wildly out of control. Now, Tom Cruise had been in movies before this. He was in Taps, he was in Endless Love, a couple others, and this was his breakout hit. And the most memorable moment of Risky Business happens the night that his parents leave for their trip. So he's got this really nice house. They live, uh, they're like a middle, upper middle class family. Really nice house. I think it takes place in Chicago. And his character, Joel Goodman, he's like, this is very first night alone. Like first night of freedom. <laughs> he raids his dad's liquor cabinet and fixes himself a Jack and Coke, which is like 85% Jack. <laughs> and like maybe a <laughs> splash of Coke on top. It is like, you can tell this is his first time raiding the liquor cabinet and i thought that was a really fun detail he's probably never had jack before and he's gonna feel it right. and uh <laughs> so he he drowns this uh this cup in jack and then he proceeds to try and eat his frozen dinner another really cool touch because he didn't even make the frozen dinner correctly the entire thing is still frozen and <laughs> Yeah, he just like picks it up in one block of ice and tries to eat this Salisbury <laughs> steak that's totally ice. And after that, like he puts it down, he walks over to the stereo and cranks it up and Bob Seger's old time rock and roll plays. Just take those old records off the shelf. I said, 
as Tom Cruise, in a scene that everybody has seen, slides into frame in his dress shirt, socks, and underwear, and then proceeds to dance around the room while lip-syncing the song. I had to include this because if you look at diegetic songs and scenes that they appear in, this scene has probably been parodied more than any other. So many films, so many TV shows, even commercials. I remember watching Saved by the Bell and seeing this scene. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire has a riff on this scene. There's so many different ones. Uh, it's a classic. Had to include it. Uh, side note, I'm not sure why Paul Brickman, who directed this, didn't really do much after this. This was his first movie. He only directed one other film in 1990, uh, a mom-com, as I call him, called uh, Men Don't Leave with Jessica Lange. And I think Kathy Bates was in that. But aside from that, he didn't direct anything else, and I've always been confused as to why. Yeah, that is strange, because it's what put Tom Cruise on the map, and this scene is so iconic, as you just demonstrated. It, yeah, that's it's kind of a conundrum right there. Yeah, I'd be interested to know why that is, but yes, Tom Cruise's underwear dance from Risky Business, my number five. I'm so glad you said that, because that was in the honorable mentions for me, for sure. It's got to be on there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Number four for right. you. Yeah, number four is a, it comes from a guilty pleasure movie of mine with Christian Bale called American Psycho. And it feels a little weird to, you know, like a movie about a serial killer, but the narration happening internally in his, in his brain is so odd and fascinating at the same time. You know, throughout the movie, you're questioning what's real and what's imagined. You try to figure out what's, you know, what's just wrong with this guy? He's, he's rich, but he's psychotic. Um, he tries to feed a cat to an ATM machine because the machine tells him to do so. Uh, he has guests over to his apartment and he has these little like long monologues about the songs that he plays, which feel more like he's reading a, <laughs> you know, a critic review from a newspaper. He's like, you know, uh, yeah. the whole album has a cool Chris sound with a new sheen of consummate <laughs> professionalism that really gives the song a, a big boost. And then he puts on Huey Lewis and the news is hip to be a square or hip to be square. And uh, he starts, you know, dancing around like a cartoon with the axe, and he's got his raincoat on. You like Huey Lewis on the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87... Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! And it just, like, it really turns the crazy up in the movie to 11 and just really makes you... You know, you're like, holy shit, things got really crazy really quick. And um, it's it's just really a, an iconic scene. And I, I can never hear that song anymore without, without thinking <laughs> of Christian Bale slicing up Jared Leto. Oh, this is a great pick. And I think this is a testament to how deep this topic is. I did not even think of American Psycho when I was coming up with my list. And as you <laughs> said it, it's like, oh, my God, that's such a great pick. There are a couple of these in that in that film because this is the Jared Leto scene, but there's also one where he's having a threesome and listening to uh, Phil Collins, right? Right, yeah, Phil Collins. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, if you haven't seen American Psycho, I mean, you got to go check it out. It's Christian Bale. This is really one of Christian Bale's coming out parties. Uh, and just a great performance, great music overall, great cast. And it recently just came out on 4K. I get this amazing steelbook of it. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Yes, for sure. All right. For my number four, there are a ton of great music cues in 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. You son of a bitch. Oh, is this on your list? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, let's see if it's the same one. It is hard to top the first scene, which introduces Peter Quill and really starts the vibe for this entire film. To, to set it up, you know what? Here's what we'll do. You can take this one and I'll just, I'll just fucking freestyle another one because I've got a big list here. Oh my God. Are you, now you're talking about the adult Peter Quill song or the young Peter Quill song? I'm talking about adult Peter Quill showing up on the planet. Okay, where... same. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you go for it and I'll, I'll freestyle another one. I want to kind of rewind the clock to the, the preface to this movie moment. And it's this movie was 2014. And at this point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we had Avengers came out, Iron Man 3, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And it's like, we all kind of knew what Marvel movies were, the formula, the style. And we loved them. I, you know, I was on board for the whole gamut. Like, I'll keep going to every single Marvel movie at this point. And then, you know, the, the trailer comes out for Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're like, I've never heard of these characters. Um, I don't know who James Gunn is. But, you know, I'm into MCU. I will go and see it. And, yeah, you know, you see Peter Quill on this, on this planet. And he brings out his Walkman. And he starts playing Redbone, Come and Get Your Love. And he starts, you know, getting into the, the vibe of it, starts dancing around a little bit. And then the the, the cymbals crash and the singer starts singing. Eh, and then the, the title of the movie comes up full screen. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this like in an empty theater. And it made me laugh because I was just like so taken aback by how of a much of a perfect moment that was for this song in this movie. Like it just totally sets the tone of, of the movie and how it's going to be funny and tongue in cheek. And I was just like, wow, this is this is taking Marvel in a new direction of like comedy being really at the forefront of some of these movies. Um, and it's it's a, it's also just a great song in general. I still love it to this day. Yeah, one of the reasons I chose this was because that song makes me so happy listening to it. It's one of those ones that you can't help but like move your body with the music. And Mm -hmm. uh, Quill, as he's dancing around that scene, is you can tell he's feeling it. He grabs like there's these little chicken type of dinosaur looking creatures and he uses one as a makeshift microphone. (laughs) And he's killing them and kicking them to the beat of the song. (laughs) It's all in, in the right beat. Exactly, exactly. And the, the Walkman itself has a strong connection to the character of Peter Quill um, and, and to his mother. I also think that there's a little bonus if you love this scene. And I'm sure if you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, you've probably already seen Avengers Endgame. But there's a really great payoff in Endgame where certain characters see that scene from another angle. And it's priceless comedy. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is awesome. <laughs> All right, so... 
We're going to say that was your number three. So I'll go into my, I'll go into like a makeshift number four and then I'll go into, uh, to my number three. Let's see for the one I'm going to freestyle here that was on my honorable mentions, but was very, very close to making it. I'm going to go with a film from 2015 called Green Room. Now, Green Room is about this band. Uh, they're called the Ain't Rights, and they are doing a little tour of doing little clubs for little amounts of money in the Pacific Northwest, and one of their gigs gets canceled. And they're pretty down on their luck. Like, they are basically using this tour to get their name out there, but they're using their winnings to pay for gas and food. Like, there's not going to be much left over. So they lose a gig, and they really need another gig, and through... A friend of a friend, they end up getting a gig, but when they arrive, they realize it's at a Nazi club and that they are opening for a black metal uh, Nazi band. You know, they're not skinheads. They are really uncomfortable with this, but they're like, you know what, we got to win this crowd over because we need this money. And they get on stage and they play a cover of the Dead Kennedys, Nazi Punks Fuck Off. Ayo. I got a dumb idea. Where'd you say the power supply was? It's like a mini transformer. A three, three females. Let's like test day one, two. Meow. Got it. Can I smell guitar? Yeah. We're not. Are we? This was your fucking idea. You back out now, I tell him you're Jewish. Go. Even ladies and gentlemen, we are the ain't rights or the aren't rights. Either one. Two, three, four! Fucking no religious code. Found me thinking for yourself. You ain't hardcore, cause you spike your hair, but a jack still lives inside your head. Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks, fuck up! Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks, fuck up! We come the fuck, get out of here! You ain't no better than bouncers. We get drunk, we freeze, and we ain't get out of the game. Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks, fuck up! It's really tense because as the audience, like, you already know going into this movie, it's kind of a very self-contained horror vibe. And you don't know whether that horror is going to pop off at this moment because they are playing this in this club to this audience. And you see people walking out. You see people throwing cans and bottles at them. And they just fucking rip this song in front of this audience and eventually win the crowd over so that they're not torn to shreds. And I always thought this was a really effective scene for a just a... An, amazing film directed by Jeremy Saulnier and it's one of uh, Anton Yelchin's last performances and it is a good one yeah that that movie it's it's kind of a rarity that, that movie it's it's kind of hard to explain how it unfolds and develops and I just remember my member I remember my takeaway that from that film being just tension just so much tension throughout the entire thing it's it's really impressive yeah, and I, I think that tension starts with this song, which is why, you know what? If we can't both have uh, Peter Quill on there, this is a worthy, uh, a worthy addition. I like it. Great improv. Yeah, that's my number four. Um, I guess we'll go on to my number three because you've done three now, yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right, number three for me. This movie, gosh, there's so many in this movie, but I'm gonna have to pick one. It's from Baby Driver from 2017 hell yeah baby is a getaway driver with tonight how do you say it tinnitus i guess is how you say it tinnitus 
Yeah, and uh, and to mask tinnitus, which is basically a constant ringing in the ears that he's got from a car accident when he was younger, he almost always has headphones in with an iPod playing something. And so, while it's not heard by everybody in the scene, every song is heard by Baby, so I think this counts. And uh, nearly the entire film is set to amazing music, and it was hard to come up with one that I thought stood out, so I'm going to go with the first scene in this film. As Baby drives up, to the curb of a bank. His bank robbery crew gets out, and as they enter the bank, he hits his iPod and turns on Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. And from this point on, Nearly everything that happens in the scene is happening to the beat of the song. Baby is feeling it. He is, he's moving the windshield wipers in unison. He's drumming on the steering wheel. He's lip syncing. He's having a great time. And then his crew comes out of the bank and shit gets real. He shifts it into the drive, still with the beat of the music, and takes us on an absolutely barn burner four minute car chase through the streets of Atlanta in this red Subaru. And there's like seven or eight cop cars on his tail and you're wondering how he's going to get out of this. And he's able to do it in a really great way. There are too many great songs to mention in Baby Driver. I could really put the whole movie on here. There's a scene where they uh, go up to some gun runners and tequila is playing. And every gunshot in the scene is to the beat of the music, which I didn't even catch until the second time I watched it, which just like it's one of those moments where I was sitting in the theater with my buddy and like. My eyes were welling up because it was just so terrific. Uh, there's a really great coffee run scene where the things that are, he's hearing are also you're seeing them on screen, which is really great. And maybe my favorite scene in the film has uh, Hocus Pocus' song Focus playing during a foot chase that uh, <laughs> is just terrific. So Baby Driver, an absolutely masterful film by Edgar Wright from 2017. The specifically the initial getaway scene, that's my number three. Yes, we are in sync today. That is also on my that's on my honorable mention list. I mean, Edgar Wright is just a he's like a cinematic genius, and I can't say that about many directors because he has this way of editing, and his music selection is just so amazing that there's songs that you probably had not necessarily heard before. They're kind of off the beaten path, and yeah, he really just kicks it off with that song at the very beginning. I've watched that opening scene, that car chase getaway scene so many times. That song is so fun. And I mean, making movies is hard enough as it is, but to <laughs> to plan these shots around these beats and these music cues, it blows my mind how well it's executed by Edgar Wright. It's fascinating. All right, number two for you, Luke Cheney. My number two choice is uh, a film from 1986. The song is from 1963. The movie is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and the scene is when Ferris sneaks onto the parade float and lip syncs to Twist and Shout by The Beatles. What do you think Ferris is gonna do? It's gonna be a fry cook at Venus. so good the song is such it's such a feel-good song and it's so infectious that i i recently learned that when they were shooting the scene and blasting the meat the music on the streets of chicago 
that thousands of people showed up during the taping and started singing along. And <laughs> a lot of those randos ended up being in the film and like in those close up uh, shots while they're singing along to the song. And like you can see it, there's a, in one shot, there's a construction worker on top of a scaffolding. Like it's a really long lens. He's doing this funny hula hoop dance. And that was not planned. Like he was just dancing along and John Hughes saw it and was like, hey, second unit, grab this shot of this guy up here. And it's like, you can feel that in the scene. Like it feels just improv almost. And um, what's great about the scene is that as it progresses, the crowd, you can physically see it getting bigger and bigger with each cut. And um, towards the end, like there's like not even a pavement, a piece of pavement left because there's just so many people packed into this parade watching Ferris Bueller lip sync and it just there's so much good energy and it makes you smile as as an audience member and it makes you want to be in that crowd or be Ferris on on the stage it's it's just an amazing song in general and uh I heard that it also came back on the charts when when this movie came out with it that does not surprise me another great pick uh wow yeah he at this point in the film he basically says screw it Everybody knows I'm out of school and <laughs> I'm going to show it <laughs> off because, I mean, people in school are going to see that. But uh, yeah. the, the kind of the climax of a really, really great day out for him. Yeah. And what's great about it is like there's the contrast of, of Cameron and Ferris. Like, you know, they're they're friends, but they're very different. And and Cameron is like he, he's always worried about the future. And and Ferris just lives in the moment. And he's like, hey, we don't know how he got onto the parade float, but he just. <laughs> ran off and decided to do it and i feel like for me personally i would love to be more ferris and less cameron in my life and and live in the moment more so that's why i love this song in this moment yeah it's funny you mentioned that because i think in that scene as ferris is on the on the float uh his girlfriend asks cameron what do you think ferris is gonna be and cameron replies a fry cook <laughs> <laughs> as he's up there having a great time exactly <laughs> Okay, number two for me is from what I think is a severely underseen movie, uh, and I love it. I think everybody that watches it loves it, so I can't say that it's underrated, but I do think it's underseen. It's from 2003's School of Rock, and it's the final song in Battle of the Bands. Now, there's a lot of music in this film. It's directed by Richard Linklater, and... Jack Black plays this loser named Dewey Finn. He's jobless and he gets kicked out of his band and uh, his his roommate Ned and his roommate's girlfriend re are really pressuring him like he's not paying rent. He needs to he needs to do his fair share. The phone rings at the house and he picks it up and it's a job. They're offering uh, Ned a job for a substitute teacher. Ned is not home and Dewey acts like Ned to become this substitute teacher so he can make a paycheck. He knows nothing about teaching. All he knows about is music. And at some point, he hears his students in music class and decides that he's going to make their new class project competing in Battle of the Bands. I think School of Rock is a perfect movie. It is anchored by a fantastic lead actor in Jack Black, who is he's so amazing in this. And it's also got some really great songs. But the song I'm submitting to my list is, of course, their final number, which they play at Battle of the Bands. Originally, Dewey wants to win Battle of the Bands to really show up his old band and make them regret dropping him as their lead guitarist. But of course, through the construct of the movie, it morphs into him really wanting each of these kids to overcome things 
like their lack of confidence or their overbearing parents or expectations. And they play a song written by a kid in class named Zach. And the song is called Teacher's Pet. And this song fucking rocks. And uh, it's like all these different influences that Jack Black has taught them throughout the the school year. Like you've got ACDC influence. There's even soul influence that kicks in. And it starts with Dewey kind of being the front man. He's singing. He's doing the guitar. He's doing his Jack Black moves on stage. And then he kind of ducks out of the spotlight and each of the kids get to show off their skills that they learned along the way. So Zach has this like killer guitar solo. Uh, there's this young African-American woman who has just a dazzling vocal solo. You get a, uh, this small Asian kid that does a little like a keyboard solo. Oh, it's so good. And you see the parents in the audience just staring there impressed that their kids could do this. And it is just a really great musical moment that I hold in high regard because School of Rock fucking rocks well you are right about it being underwatched because i have not seen it unfortunately but oh, uh yeah that's gonna go on my watch list right now it's so good it's so good written by mike white i think who's really talented yeah 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 i i feel like i jack black is kind of kind of fading away like besides jumanji films i feel like i have not seen him in a very long time Jack Black has taken a lot of indie style projects recently, which I think he's had some really strong performances. He was really great in the Polka King. And then before that, he was in a movie called Bernie, and he was really excellent in Bernie. Oh, I didn't see that one. Yeah, all good ones. Luke Cheney, number one on diegetic songs. Oh, my number one. Uh, this is tough. Uh, okay, here we go. My number one was recently put onto the Rolling Stones' list of the 500 greatest songs of all time and it's ranked at number 47 if you haven't seen that list check it out it's, it's kind of fun to see where they put those but anyways uh, the song comes from elton john um one of my favorite artists and um for this particular force five song um it's my number one because the song was never a hit before this particular movie used it and the movie i'm talking about is almost famous and the song is tiny dancer and what's brilliant about how Cameron Crowe uses the song is that it starts non-diegetically. The song comes in at the halfway point of the movie, I think it is. And it's just a, it starts with a light piano and it kind of feels like the end of the movie almost because they're leaving this party where um, the lead singer made a, made an ass of himself and um, disrespected the band and they get on the, the touring bus and the, the touring manager gives us like, big showman goodbye and um everyone gets onto the bus and they're all just silent and it's awkward like mommy and daddy just had a big fight and you think that the band is you know gonna break up at this point because of the lead singer and um the song is still playing and the bus drives down um you know middle of america and um you're seeing these just these glim faces everyone just looks depressed and sad and eventually the words of Elton John start start singing along and um, 
there's a drummer in the back of the bus and he starts, um, he's got drumsticks in his hand just kind of randomly and he starts hitting them against his knee. But it's also in the beat of the song. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Can these people on this bus hear the song? Because it starts <laughs> off non-diegetically and then it becomes diegetically. Cameron Crowe is sneaky like that. And then people one by one start singing along with the lyrics, but not Russell, the, the lead singer. He is still like stone-faced. But eventually when the chorus comes in, he also sings along. It gives me goosebumps when everyone sings along. And it's just like a great moment because this is a band that was on the face of breaking up and now they're kind of like getting back in touch with why they probably originally became a band. They just love music. It's just like the perfect visualization of the strength of music. It brings people together. You know, music can do so many things. It can comfort you when you're going through heartache. It can be a, a time machine and it can take you back to another part of your life. And uh, like, it can also help you bloom a friendship when you find out that someone likes the same weird ass music as you. And, you know, for me, there's no Tiny Dancer without Almost Famous and there's no Almost Famous without Tiny Dancer. This is a really amazing movie. Uh, I just ordered it on Blu-ray. I have not gotten it in yet and I can't wait to rewatch it. I think the last time I've seen it is probably around the time it came out on DVD and the director's cut came out, which is really, really good. Cameron Crowe is just such a talented writer. And I agree this song just, it, it makes that scene one of maybe three or four scenes that have always stuck in my head about this film. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I I'm like, writing a thank you letter to to movies because of you know music like there's so many songs that i've just discovered through movies and this is probably the biggest one which is why it's on the list of of songs that i love that i never knew of before i saw the movie for my grand finale i'm just gonna start with one question as i present my number one luke you ever listen to k billy's super sounds of the 70s Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steelers Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K. Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continued. Yes, I have. <laughs> Mr. Blonde asks Marvin Nash this question in 1992's Reservoir Dogs as he pulls a straight razor out of his boot. And I'm sure anybody that knows me could see this coming, but I absolutely love this scene. Uh, after a heist gone wrong, the participants of said heist are holed up in an old warehouse, and when some of the robbers leave, Mr. Blonde played magnificently by Michael Madsen, like Michael Madsen at his absolute best, mm -hmm. is left to his own devices with a police officer who's tied to a chair and his fellow robber, Mr. Orange, bleeding out on the ground next to him. He turns on the radio and the song Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel 
starts up. And it's not the fact that the song is playing over this scene that makes it so harrowing. It's that Mr. Blonde is toying with Marvin Nash. He dances around with his straight razor, takes a couple swipes at him. And when he feels like he's messed with Marvin Nash enough, he sits on his lap and carves his ear off with the razor. And it doesn't end there. The song continues as Mr. Blonde walks outside. And as he walks outside, the song fades away because we follow Mr. Blonde to his car to retrieve a gas can. And then he comes back. And when he walks into the warehouse, the song comes back in for us as the audience, as he now again hears it. And he proceeds to douse the cop with gasoline. This scene is a terrific look at how sadistic Mr. Blonde is. And it will always be what I think about when I hear this song. It's also one of the first examples of how amazing Quentin Tarantino is when it comes to music choices. And he's very similar in that regard, like we talked about, to Edgar Wright. Um, There are so many musical moments in Tarantino films that I could have probably put 10 on here. Like the the dance-off in Pulp Fiction almost made this list. Yeah. The... The, the scene where she does the heroin thinking that it's coke almost made my list as she turns the stereo on when she gets home. There are so many Tarantino moments. And I think I've heard him say, like when he writes a scene, sometimes he starts with the song that's going to be playing in that scene. And I think this one right here really shows that. Yeah, another song that almost was on the list. Uh, yeah, Tarantino is just a master when it comes to picking music and his knowledge is just off the charts when it comes to choosing things that just perfectly work for the scene. I remember in like Django Unchained, he references or uses songs, you know, from the 21st century in this old Western movie, but it somehow works perfectly the way that he sets it all up. Uh, He's just a marvel with, with music in his movies. Great pick. Yeah. He used a uh, Rick Ross song in, (laughs) in, uh, in that, in that movie. Uh, I know that you've probably got a ton of also-rans, a bunch of honorable mentions. What else narrowly missed your list? I've got a couple ones. Uh, Here we go. I've got Gone in 60 Seconds when Nicolas Cage puts on Before the Heist. He puts on Lowrider. And I feel like it's very Nick Cagey, the way that he he gets into the (laughs) zone when he's listening to this song and like his hands start to vibrate and gyrate. And then Uh we've got uh, in Apollo 13, they put on Spirit. Spirit in the Sky on the uh, little cassette tape when they're doing the little tour of the um, the capsule when they're in space. And then one that I really wanted to put on the list but didn't quite fit our our mold for songs was um, from Star Wars, A New Hope, the Cantina Band song, um, Mm. because it kind of just sets up the universe and it shows you all these monsters and this bar. But since, you know, John Williams wrote it for the movie, I, I disqualified it. There are so many on my honorable mentions. I'm going to try and pare it down here. I have to mention this first one. And the only reason that it didn't make it is because it really doesn't have anything to do with the plot. And I could have switched it with Risky Business in that regard, but Risky Business is just so iconic. But I know if I don't mention it, uh, loyal listener Sean is going to just crucify me. And that's the beginning of Wayne's World as they are singing along to uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Just oh my amazing, God, I forgot about that one. Damn it. Just an amazing scene as they are going back and forth with their lip syncs. 
the uh the ending scene in bridesmaids where the uh the at the wedding wilson phillips plays is a really really great scene (laughs) uh high fidelity which i didn't put on here because jack black already made the list in school of rock the monday morning mixtape scene with jack black and john cusack is amazing remember the titans where the team kind of comes together over um oh what's the song it's escaping my my mind ain't no mountain high that's the one, Ain't No Mountain High, yep, in the locker room. Really, really That's great so scene. Uh, I I have to mention these two because my wife loves these. Hot Rod, there's a scene where they're hanging out in the parking lot of a convenience store and Two of Hearts is playing as Hot Rod is, Rod, rather, is talking to a girl that he's interested in and his friends are all dancing really, really goofy in the background. Always cracks her up, is great. <laughs> and, of course, uh, she would kill me if I didn't mention Heath Ledger in 10 things i hate about you just uh singing to cat as he walks down the football field and the football team starts playing the music to the song that he's singing really really oh, great classic i had to leave off dirty dancing love actually has a great song straight out of compton which i i felt bad leaving off and then finally straight out of low cash from the film cb4 with chris rock is a hilarious song and i would feel bad if i didn't mention that too Oh my god! I just thought of one more. <laughs> <laughs> that it's happens. At the, it's at the end of rush hour um, when they're on the airplane. They're going to China, and he starts. Uh, Jackie Chan starts singing "To War," which becomes the ending credits song. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's another great one that I did not think of. Oh, it's so much fun going through these movies and and looking for these this music stuff. It's it was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I hope that this is a great topic, and I hope that this inspires other people to come up with their own list because, man, this this was a fruitful topic, to be sure. Luke, what else do you have to plug tonight, if anything? Oh, yeah, you know, just Movie Time Capsule is, is my podcast, and um, yeah, just like this list, I hope uh, if you listen to my show, it'll inspire you to check out new movies and old movies. Cool. And Movie Time Capsule, you can find anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, Spreaker, wherever it's going to be there. Cool. Anything else uh, people should see, look for, uh, social media you want to throw out there? Oh, my gosh. If you want to follow me, I don't have a pod. uh, I don't have an Instagram for my podcast, but if you want to see me on Instagram, it is Los Angeles underscore Luke. That's it. Now that you know what diegetic means, what are your favorite diegetic songs and films? Let me and Luke know on social media, Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the next show. I'm also pretty active on Letterboxd, letterboxd.com backslash Force5 if you want a sneak peek at what I've been watching and what I might be reviewing on next week's show. Of course, if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell your friends. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go listen to some diegetic songs. Force 5.